Hello and welcome to the Cheating Death with Great Success podcast. I'm your host, Francis Hellebush, and I will be sharing my story about how I've cheated death at least three times I know about in the past five years. First things first, this podcast is not for children, those with PTSD, or those who are sensitive to violent storytelling. In this podcast, I will share my story of how and why I should have been beaten by jaguars in the middle of the jungle, how I flipped a car in the middle of nowhere and had to immediately deadlift that same car off my friend to prevent him from dying, and how I managed to survive a murder attempt from my ex-best friend with a kitchen knife in my own bedroom. There's a lot to unpack here, but hopefully by listening to this podcast, you'll have some takeaways that'll help you cheat death in your own life. Out in the street. They call it this is episode one, and this episode is going to kind of set the scene of who I am, just to kind of paint a picture and how I got into the scenario, and I think it just might help characterize who, like, the story in general, just to get a little character development in this. So, my name is Francis, as I already said, and I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, so Midwest boy, born in 1994, and I am from a medium-sized large family. I'm not exactly sure. Depends what kind of generation we're looking at. But in the 90s, I'd say large. Four siblings. I'm the youngest. Um, I have two older brothers and an older sister. And like most people in St. Louis, um, St. Louis is kind of interesting because if you look at how they draw cities and demographics and stuff like that, it doesn't really paint the whole scene. And you can kind of see that um, when you Google population sizes of any big city in the United States. I'm not sure if that's the same for the other places, but St. Louis, like the city core is about 800,000 people, but the metropolitan area is about 3 million. And I'm one of the um, 3 million. And so there's a lot of sprawling suburbs thanks to the government, you know, subsidizing uh, <laughs> the personal car usage. And anyway, as a result of sprawling suburbs, I grew up in a predominantly um, white neighborhood, unfortunately to say, and I went to an actually pretty diverse elementary school. A lot of kids from different backgrounds, it pulled from a lot of different neighborhoods, and there's a lot of resettlements in St. Louis, and so we got a lot of that diversity from people's parents moving and immigrating to the United States in the middle of the country. So I'm really glad to say that um, I didn't come from a whitewashed neighborhood or like a religious school background. Um, fair to say that, you know, there's a decent amount of propaganda, but it wasn't as mind controlling as, uh, some, some people might have experienced. Anyway, typical kid growing up in the suburbs, went to elementary school, middle school. I never had one of those like cringe years, uh, managed to avoid that, which was pretty good. I was more one of those kids who kind of just kind of kept to myself and didn't really get into the bullshit and just kind of had those big old headphones and ignored everyone on the bus and thought I was cooler than everyone because I listened to, you know, rock music from the 70s rather than like, uh, I don't know, Green Day or Avril Lavigne of whatever people in 2006, 7, 8 were listening to. Very jaded um, as a kid and, and probably still now. And then I went through high school and typical kid thought I was going to get um, just a degree and I didn't really know what I wanted to do as anyone does you know, got to make the biggest economic decision when you're 18 that's the uh, culture of the United States and there I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do how I was going to make money and all this financial literature coming from my 
you know, middle class parents, which, you know, if they were in a richer class, maybe I would have got different lessons, but no blame there or anything like that, just what it was. And so what seemed like a stable financial decision was to marry my passions with a sound degree. And for me, a sound degree was a STEM degree, science, technology, education, and math, or sorry, engineering and math. And I was always told that if you get like a real degree, quote, if I could, if you could see my hand quotes, um, then I'll make a living. Whereas like liberal art degrees don't make money in our country. We don't respect them. And that's true for a lot of people. But I think with any hard work and determination, you can make whatever you want out of that. So I ended up getting a civil and environmental engineering degree. And the reason I did that is because I have a big love for being outside and caring for the environment and just kind of treating it with the respect it deserves rather than, you know, just this thing that we can exploit and destroy and uh, ignore and pretend like it's not a part of us and pretend that, you know, humans aren't animals and so on and so forth. And that love of the environment came from my parents, which they did a great job um, instilling that with me. I was outside a lot, always playing with like the neighborhood kids, you know, in the summer nights, that kind of stuff. But then it kind of grew during those summer months where my parents' idea of vacation was to take a pop-up camper. And if you don't know what this is, it's like a, you get like a van or you get like a, a big SUV and you pull this 10 foot white box with you. And then you set it up on a campsite um, or where it has a little gravel patch and you like extend these legs down so it's stabilized and you pull out two full-size beds on both sides and it kind of makes like a, it's an expanded accordion box that goes up and then you pull the beds horizontal and you stabilize the beds by attaching metal poles to the bed frames at that, sorry, the frame of the, of the pop-up. So it's sturdy. It's kind of hard to see it. I would, if you want to Google it, just Google. I think we had a Coleman pop-up camper. Um, you'll know what I'm talking about. But anyway, we could fit our whole family in there, and our family is six people. And so we would take this to national parks for two-week vacations. And so my dad was always good at bargaining for part-time or paid time off. So he always managed to get four weeks off. And my mom was a teacher, so we had plenty of free time and variety of what we could do in the summers but my dad really hated to go somewhere warm when it was the summer he didn't make sense from st louis in general gets a lot of heat in the humidity in the summertime and so he didn't make sense to go somewhere even hotter like a beach say florida or you know um somewhere in texas with a beach and so i don't know if that was a money saving technique or that was really how he felt at the time i think a little bit of both but to his credit he always liked to go to the mountains and so we'd go to the Rocky Mountain National Park or maybe Glacier National Park or Yellowstone and Tetons National Park, all these places. Um, so I'm really grateful that I had these experiences and I wouldn't trade them for other experiences. And as a result, I learned what it was to be outside, how it is, you know, what it is in different climates and different ecosystems and different wildlife and how to care for it. And the National Park Service has this um, education program where they set up these placards which is like a three foot by two foot plastic like picture board where it tells you about the wildlife like hey this is this flower this is this animal these are the tracks and then it would talk about the land and it'd be like oh it's made from this rock this like mountain was made 10 million years ago so on and so forth and so 
one of the things it would say is like environmental differences from like a hundred years ago and the impacts that humans have made and just the impacts of changing environments. And one of the things that really struck me was the, the decline of glacier size and glacier mass. So you'd go to a mountain and you see a picture from the 1900s and it'd be like these snow tipped mountains and glaciers everywhere. And then it'd be like 2010 at the time or whenever 2005, I guess be more accurate. And you know, 90% of the glaciers would be gone. And then you'd go to like Rocky Mountain National Park and they would tell you about how the trees are dying because of the pine bark beetle that's like, you know, uh, decimating the trees or killing the trees because they burrow into the bark. And it's because there's warmer climates and the winters aren't as cold because of climate change and it can't freeze these bugs as well. And there's a lot of stress in the forest and all these things I was starting to like subconsciously understand and then in um, high school, I did a lot of environmental um, intelligence uh, competition. There's this thing called Envirothon where they give you like uh, a five-page test and test and over with a team of five people over five different six different source uh, categories. So like uh, there'd be like a category in like forestry or wildlife, and it was all subject to Missouri, like the local area. And then you'd go and you'd like basically compete to see how much you've learned about your local environment, which was very good. And then also I just really had a affinity for science. I maxed out my science classes in, uh, in high school, you had to pick and choose. And so like, there were like electives, you couldn't get to like certain advanced placement science courses without doubling down on science, which is ridiculous. So I had to, um, like, instead of taking like photo three, I had to take like biology three or instead of most people just take bio one or bio, you know, not, and that's it. Um, or honors physics or whatever. And so I, I didn't mind it. I actually liked the sciences at the time. I thought it was most intriguing. And I also just did better in those, uh, subjects. Um, and I wasn't really into history. I think part of it knew that most of history in the United States is just propaganda for why America is the greatest country in the world, quote unquote. Um, which is not. And, you know, they really pump like freedom and we're the winners of World War II and all that garbage. And, you know, science doesn't really take an angle. It's just like, oh, that's what it is. Um, and so, yeah, I married science with like, you know, I can take this tool set and make the planet better or at least maybe make my impact on the planet better. And so... With that passion, I was like, well, how do I get a degree that actually solidifies that as a career and a lifestyle and a way to make money? And it's it was challenging, but I just I went for that civil engineering degree and I got it. And then um, during this degree, it was really encouraged by my parents, my family to study abroad for a semester not study abroad for like three weeks or six weeks and say that you've studied abroad. Uh, I think any study abroad program should be at least three months, maybe more to really get integrated. I felt like the first month and a half I was there, I was still getting acclimated. Uh, and this is might be, this might be different from countries that speak English or your, your mother tongue. And me who took like high school Spanish, who barely knew jack shit when I showed up, uh, thinking I could just get by. Yeah. It didn't really work so well when I was having dinners with a woman who only spoke, oh, actually a grandma, a feminist grandma who hated the language of English and thought it sounded like shit. 
and refused to learn one word. Yeah, it didn't go so well with my high school Spanish. I hadn't refreshed in four years. So yeah, you know, there's that period of time that you need to acclimate to any environment and any culture. So yeah, once I was in Spain, I did live with um, a feminist grandma. She was a lovely woman, but I learned that she was the videographer of the largest feminist group in the city I was in, which was Alicante, Spain. And I love Spain and it was, and the country's beautiful and it was a city located in the Mediterranean. So that was all fun and great. And what I learned is that I just really, really enjoyed this lifestyle. And I didn't realize that there's other cultures outside of mine and this isn't the defined way to live. You didn't have to do what they told you to do. And I was always for looking for, I was always looking for a way to get out of this box that everyone kind of pre prescribes you. Like, you know, I call it the 12 steps, 12 steps of domestication, you know, grow up, go to high school, go to college, meet your loved one, you know, graduate college, uh, get your career, uh, get engaged to your loved one and then buy a house and then get married and move into the house, buy a dog and then, uh, have a kid and then, you know, keep working that same career for 40 years and then start giving unsolicited advice on how to live your life uh, when you actually haven't lived one. <laughs> that's that's kind of American culture, or at least Midwest culture. That's, I see it. You know, there's just not a whole lot of room to really live or try different things without being ridiculed or at least like, oh, he's just going through a phase or she's just going through a phase. He'll come around. That kind of bullshit. So yeah, uh, where am I? So the travel bug from studying abroad really was drilled into my brain. And I knew that I always wanted to travel and keep traveling. And I got one chance that was like a three-week three, mo- three week stint where in, uh, in Ecuador, Colombia, and Panama. But that was so quick and shotgun approach. I was in a new city like every three days. And that's just not the way I like to travel. And I, I really didn't get that immersive feeling like I did when I studied abroad in Spain for five months. And so my thirst wasn't quenched. And so I needed to keep going. So I got my degree and I got a remote job. And so there I was in in St. Louis living in my parents' house, my same childhood bedroom where I lived and grew up in my entire life. And just kind of having a quarter life crisis, like, holy shit, I just got a degree and I have all these student loans and I got to like make a living. I got to get a job with healthcare and I got to pay out, start paying off these this interest rate and this principal on my loans. And I got to move out of my parents' house. I, if I only want mental health or a sex life, holy shit, I got to get the fuck out. And I'm just looking and grasping for straws. And one of the things that kind of married both of these dilemmas I had was like, why don't I just take working abroad as my solution? I can take my job now. I can just go sit up in some hostel or, you know, common day, workspace, you know, a cafe or whatever, cafe hop with Wi-Fi signal, like, and just get my job done. And I knew that was a little bit of a risk, but I also knew that like it could be done and there are working spaces in some hostels. The next challenge was taking how much money I was making per hour, which at the time was 15 US dollars per hour, which is slightly above minimum wage now. Minimum wage in Missouri at the time, and I'm not even sure what it is now, is like $7 and a quarter, which is essentially slave labor. Uh, and you can't live off that. But $15 was doing pretty good at the time. And it was 
as much most amount of money I was making or had ever made in my in my career as a person. And I think that's partially because I was only I've only worked research jobs and they like pay you like dog shit because academia doesn't have the budget to pay its researching their researching staff or even themselves. I mean that's a whole whole other podcast in itself, but so I was always getting paid like ten dollars an hour and you know, just always pricing experience over how much I was getting paid and that's kind of how they say, well, build your resume. I was always doing things for a line on my resume. And here I was with this great resume, but not knowing how to make money. And so I was like, well, $15 isn't that bad. I bet I can make my dollar go further if I went somewhere where the US dollar would go, had a better purchasing power. And that's a little fucked up, but you know, you got to play with the cards you're dealt and fake it till you make it. And I see a lot of people just make using money as an excuse or using this and that as an excuse not to do the things that they want to do. And I, I didn't want that to be me. And so I, I brought up the idea of working abroad and central or South America to my bosses. And they were like, sure. Yeah. Like I, we, I used to work in Costa Rica for a while. I had my family there and we got some guy in Argentina that was working for us and that was no problem. And they just go, you know what? If you can just stay in the same time zone, that would be perfect. We have no problem with that. But if you go to like, I don't know, Vietnam or Thailand, like we're going to have a real problem because we're on opposite sides of the world. And so like you're going to be working in the middle of the night. Like we're not going to be able to communicate. And I just don't think it's going to work for us. And I said, fair, fair, fair. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going to go to Central America. And what I'm thinking right now is Colombia. And that's in Central Time Zone for the most part. And they worked in a Pacific Time Zone. So a two hour difference, not a big deal. And so that was kind of that. I got the green light. And so there was a conference for sustainability in higher ed. And that was in Phoenix, Arizona. And so I was just going to fly to Phoenix. And I went to this conference. And after the conference, I was going to fly to Central America. I originally picked Colombia because I'd been there before. And I really loved the country. The people are so nice. I like. I could already speak a little bit of Spanish. No big. I could probably polish on it. I really wanted to live in a place I spoke Spanish, so I could actually become fluent or at least passable. I had it serviceable in Spain. I don't. I don't want to give that impression, but I wanted to improve upon it. I think being fluent and bilingual is just one of the modern day superhero abilities that the U.S. doesn't exercise as a kid. So you really have to work hard at it. So that was the plan. But I had a friend who had recently gone, or a couple friends who had recently gone to Belize and they loved it. And they said, you know, you really should, you ought to go like, just take a plane down there, stay there for a month and then go to Colombia. And I said, okay. And so, uh, I was really open to suggestion, especially for travel at the time. Always am actually. And there I was, um, I took a plane from Phoenix to Belize city. And at the conference, I was kind of planning to have more free time and actually plan my life a little bit. But, uh, ended up just not i ended up getting like a little drunk with like some co-workers in the field uh they were older and they were just excited for me to go and they're like oh my god and like i'm like yeah i got two suitcases this is all i had to live out of for the next x amount of months and they're giving me all this advice and uh, i realized i came home from that that i hadn't booked a hostel or a hotel or any accommodation and horribly horribly um <laughs> ill-prepared uh but that didn't really stop me and so I got on the plane and I booked for a place um, just somewhere in San Ignacio, Belize, which would end up being my home 
and also where someone would attempt to kill me. But we'll get to that much later. But that's where a base camp for me for the next few years would be. So I flew into Belize City. And I get off the plane and I just remember this wonderful feeling of humidity and heat. And I'm like, thank God. Like, I could finally breathe and like relax and just like finally get out of the States. And the States is so toxic that you don't even know that how toxic it is until you leave it. And so they get that first breath of fresh air and like, um, like I'm outside of that vortex. And then I didn't know how the fuck to get to San Ignacio. No idea. Um, I quickly learned from the airport that you have to take a, a taxi to the bus station and then take a bus to San Ignacio. Otherwise you're going to pay a dude like 200 us to drive you like two and a half hours to San Ignacio. And I, didn't really have the budget to do that in, the, in this time, <laughs> especially because I was trying to maximize how much money I was going to live off of. And there's always resettling costs and you learn how to do things cheaper over time. But that first few weeks of any country you move to, like you end up spending a bit, a bit more money. And so I got to the bus station and I could see some other people, other tourists, they see white girls and you can tell any tourist is a tourist. They always have these big, like, I'm going to go on like the Sierra Nevada, California backpacking trip. And they have like a 60 liter bag and they think that the, you need this bag to like travel. And it's like the best way to <laughs> store all your stuff. And it's not. And it, it's just like, it's so nice for everyone to just like, oh, okay, I got it. You're the kind of person that like thinks this is the thing. And like, you want to be this image for Instagram or whatever. This is what someone's told you to pack. And, you know, I think it is to their credit, like easier to have straps in your back, but it's not the only shape and size of a bag that you need to travel. Anyway, uh, I just kind of overhear that they're going to San Ignacio and I kind of did like, Oh, you guys going there? Like, so am I, uh, and just totally piggyback off of like their research that they did that I did not do. And there I was um, on my way to San Ignacio and ended up getting there a few hours later. And it's a little bit of a rainy night. And there was a tour guide that worked out of the islands and he was commuting back to San Ignacio. I don't know if he lived there or he just had family there or whatnot, but he was kind of chit-chatting all of us at the very end. He's like, where are you guys going? And he got off the bus with us and he's got his like snorkel gear and his, his fins. And he's like basically pointing us to where we all are going he goes you girls are going there and like you're gonna go up the hill and make a right and he goes I'm my house is this way so i'm gonna go singing is a very small town so that kind of made sense and i was glad because you, a lot of times when you show up to countries you don't have data or wi-fi you just kind of have to like wing it and so then i find the hostel that i booked i open up the the gate there and he, i talk to the hostel manager and it's this guy he ends up being my friend but he looks at me, straight deadpan face. He goes, where are your friends? And I laugh. I go, I guess it's a joke. Like, are you trying to, are you trying to pull one on me? And I was like, uh, it's just me. He goes, well, then why did you book for three people? He goes, I moved people around just to like, make sure you had that space to yourself. And I go, oh yeah, no, it's just me. Um, I didn't mean to book three beds. And he goes, all right, all right, all right, I'll change in the morning, but um, I'm like, well, I'm like, you can tell them they can sleep where they were, and he goes, well, you can tell them that yourself. I think I put them like below you in the floor below you, but 
what's done is done, whatever. He goes, I'm still going to charge you for this. And I go, that's fair. I mean, whatever. That's my bad. And so, yeah, um, there I was. I had landed in Belize, and that would be probably one of the most interesting times uh, that I will have. And I had no idea that my whole life would be altered by just drunkenly booking this place uh, in Phoenix, Arizona at a conference. And there's a lot more to say, and we're going to unpack the rest of this about how I ended up meeting the hostel staff and how I ended up running the hostel, how I kind of got the keys to the car kind of thing, um, and just getting integrated to my uh, my chosen Belizean family and friends and how all those characters played a role in how I shaped my my outlook on life and how it aided to me being able to think the way I do to be able to cheat death three times when I was in Belize. And there's probably other countless times that I've avoided as well, but you know, I can only count what I can see in front of me. But until next time, I will talk to you guys all later. And if you enjoy the podcast, share it with your friends. If not, send it to your enemies and tell them to listen to it too. All right. Cheers. Yo, Francis, dude. Yo. Nine blessings, dude. Counting with you. You know that stuff. <laughs> That's another sign. You know the magic in it. Rastafari. Bless the love, brethren.